Holy Father, we pray now that you would give us grace by your spirit as we have your word in front of us, as we have your uh, message to us that we're able by your kindness to consider and reflect on today, and that as you have promised to send your spirit wherever there are people who come together in your name, uh, we ask that you would give us grace to hear and to uh, respond to your word, to understand it. God, we pray that you would give us grace not only to understand it uh, mentally, but to take it into our hearts and to, through your word to us, see how great you are, to see you more clearly, to rejoice in who you are and what you're doing, and to, to turn ourselves in whatever way we need to, because you know, O oh Lord, to turn ourselves toward you. Give us grace to do this. We know that this is your purpose in calling us here together today. And so we pray that we would be able to do that and give you the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing in uh, the series that I have been uh, working through with us uh, on the book of Jonah. So just now, uh, Greg mentioned the series on the the uh, covenant, the church covenant, and that Pastor Nate has been preaching, and we're just taking a little break from that today to return to Jonah. Um, and we have, in the time that we've uh, had together, uh, several sessions so far, we've come up to Jonah 3. We got as far as uh, the end of Jonah 2, last time, now here we are, ready for Jonah 3. So you can turn to the third chapter of Jonah. And I'll just, just to try to recapture, because we're not in Jonah every week, just try to recapture what we're looking at when we look at the book of Jonah, and what we've seen so far from the book of Jonah. This is not um, a book that uh, is about the dangers of whales, as you might have had a childhood impression of Jonah, um, but it's a, it's a meditation on God's patience and God's mercy and kindness uh, in the face of the most extreme kind of situations. It's a book that's full of uh, really remarkable ironies, and the main figure is Jonah, this unwilling spokesman for God. He doesn't want to go anywhere. He doesn't want to tell uh, the Assyrians, the people in Nineveh, anything that God wants him to tell them. And uh, really against his will and by accident, he manages to give uh, a true word about God to the sailors on the boat he's trying to escape from God on. And uh, they turn to God and, and they give glory to God. But Jonah doesn't. He goes over the side instead, expecting to die. And instead of dying, God shows him this great mercy. Instead of punishing his rebellious prophet, which is what Jonah fully expects and, and believes is happening, God sends this really um, unmistakable miracle to preserve his life. There are some things that might have happened, some things that we see in other people's lives in the scripture where people might look at that and say, well, that, maybe that was just a coincidence. You know, maybe that wasn't God doing anything special for me. Jonah couldn't think that uh, because no one 
gets accidentally swallowed by a big fish and then miraculously kept alive for three days inside of it. Jonah knew that he was being rescued by God. And so in that situation, he's grateful and he praises God. And uh, yet, as we saw last time from Jonah 2, he hasn't quite repented. We looked last time at his psalm of thanksgiving, but we noticed that Jonah doesn't take any responsibility for the situation that he's in. And that Jonah still sees himself as basically, you know, a good guy, maybe the good guy over and against the pagans that are around him. Jonah, um, he still has some big challenges ahead of him. But God is at work in his life. So it says here, we'll just pick up at the end of chapter 2, verse 10, that the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land, and he gets to start over again. And chapter 3 really does, in some sense, seem to start over again. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose. This time he does get up. And he goes to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here's kind of our setting for today's passage. Jonah arrives at this huge city this, that's full of these hated people, the Assyrians. And you might remember, we saw it when we first started our discussion of Jonah, that Jonah has some reasons to hate the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a powerful military empire that ruled through terror and that they had done brutal things, unspeakable things to their many neighbors, including Israel, which is where Jonah himself was from. So he shows up at this city that he hates, and we're going to see a lot more about that next time, this city that God has taken special notice of. And he delivers this message that God has entrusted to him. It says that he called out, verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God is putting you officially on notice. Destruction is coming. And the suggestion, I think, of of the phrase here in verse verse 4, going a day's journey, is that he's just getting started. He's just beginning his work. He's planning to preach this message of judgment for you know, 40 days, like it says right there. And yet he just barely gets started when something totally shocking happens. Nineveh unexpectedly repents. And I want us to see how thoroughly God expresses this in the text. So just start with me here in verse 5. Every single separate thing that is said that paints the picture of their repentance. It says, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. And that word sackcloth is not something that is familiar to us, but at that, in that time, in that age, this was uh, this wearing of um, 
uncomfortable or uh, you know miserable looking outfits. It's just basically, it's just a bag you kind of put on your body instead of normal clothes. It shows your you you know that you're you're sad you're sad and you're sorry. It's something that people would wear sometimes when they were in mourning. It's a way of showing to God who sent this warning. Wow, we are really serious about listening to your warning. We're really serious about uh, trying, to, trying to solve this problem that we found ourselves in. So they put on sackcloth. <clears throat> and it says that this fast and this sackcloth goes from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is not something that only affects one segment of society. In fact, verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, And he got up from his throne and took off his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And again, something that might seem strange to us, but this would have been uh, something that everyone around him understood. The the, the sackcloth is not enough, right? Like, yes, I'm very, very sorry for what I've done. I'm I'm really trying to show this foreign god that I'm really really repentant but the sackcloth doesn't cut it instead i'm going to go as far as i can go and i'm going to sit here in the ashes i'm going to take if you have a fireplace in your home you might have worked with ashes before they're just an awful mess and they're terrible and they get all over everything you just grab those pour them on your head sit in a pile of them why because this was a sign in the ancient near east that you are serious about expressing your sorrow And then, verse 7, it says that he issued a proclamation and he published throughout Nineveh, all over the city, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And this is something that was actually unique to this uh, people group, to the Assyrians and the people groups adjacent to them, that in the most extreme cases of seeking uh, mercy from the divine, they would take these marks of sorrow, the fasting and the sackcloth. They wouldn't just do it themselves. Their animals would do it too. This doesn't occur anywhere else because the Israelites didn't do this. This wasn't their practice. But it's an attested practice of the Assyrians from other circumstances. And so they're going to get as low as they can go. And he says, having done that, let each person... Call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that that is in his hands. And I just want to remind us that that mention of violence is not uh, accidental. When God first sends Jonah to go to Nineveh, in in Jonah 1, verse 2, he says, Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The evil that Nineveh was marked with, the evil that marked the Assyrians, was violence. And here's Jonah in the heart of this great city, and it should not surprise us at all that this city is full of violence. These people are marked by violence. They're not nice at home, and then they go out and put their imperial hat on and conquer everybody else and they're mean to them the whole city is full of violence which is why the king says 
that every person, that each one should turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And he says, verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. So today I, I want us to really ask two questions. The first question we see here and the second question is in the next verse because verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. And so I want us to just reflect on these two questions, the two questions that the text puts right in front of us most closely. And that is, why, why do these Assyrians do what they do? Now, this, is not, this is not what we would expect at all. Coming to this story from the outside. Although, if we've been following closely, by this point in the story, we might suspect that this is what's going to happen to Jonah. And secondly, why does God do what he does? Because he has said that he has, he has sent Jonah to say in 40 days Nineveh is going to be overturned. Nineveh is going to be destroyed. So why doesn't he do that? Let's start with the first question. Why do the Assyrians do what they do? And the answer, of course, is right here in verse 5. It says that when the people heard this message that Jonah preaches, the people of Nineveh, believed God. And so, you know, this, I'm, I'm saying this just to make sure that it's really obvious. Anyone who hears a message of God's anger is going to do the kind of things that they do, whatever's suitable for that person's culture, if they believe what they're hearing. You might have been down uh, on certain spots downtown in downtown Edmonton, uh, and you might have heard street preachers down there. People who stand on the corner, they got a big speaker system, and they're, they're just preaching to whoever's there. I've encountered that once or twice. And uh, when that happens, frequently there is a message of God's judgment that's coming to people. And yet what do we see? And, and what have you seen? Maybe you've, maybe you've seen this, or maybe you've seen you know, something online or something like that. Here's a guy preaching, and there's people all around making fun of the guy. You know, people have their own signs. They're standing behind him, stuff like that. Why do they do that? Because they don't believe what he's saying. It's, it's all a big joke, right? If they did believe what he was saying, they would act really differently. What the Ninevites are doing, they're doing because they believe this message. And so why do they believe it? Because we wouldn't expect them to believe it. They are not... If we're describing this from the outside, we're not thinking these people are going to be real receptive to Jonah's message. In fact, as we mentioned at the beginning, that might be part of the reason why Jonah was so reluctant to going in the first place. Who would listen to him? Nineveh is this big, powerful military state. they got their own gods. They've been doing all this kind of stuff, killing all these people. Some random prophet from Samaria is going to show up and tell them that this foreign God is angry with them, and they're going to listen? Why would they do that? <clears throat> there are two reasons that I think are clear from the text why they do that. Um, but the first one is, is maybe not something in the text. The first one comes to us from history. 
I think the, the, from a social perspective, there are signs in this text that gel with what we know about Assyria during the middle of the 8th century, which would have been about the time that Jonah was there. Assyria was a big, powerful military empire, but in the middle of the 8th century, things were real bad in Assyria. They were not going well. There had been some chaos in the royal uh, succession line. Emperor was replacing emperor, not in the way that was expected. There was infighting. There was instability throughout the empire, a lot of factionalism. And militarily, they had suffered some major setbacks, not against Israel, but against some of the other tribes, particularly to the north. And their historical records from this period note that they were consumed with bad omens and these kind of fearful portents. There's, uh, there's a, a plague in one area. and They're worried that the gods are angry. And there's, there's an eclipse in another place. And they're worried that the gods are angry. In fact, there wasn't supposed to be a king in Assyria. This reference of the king of Nineveh. I'm sorry, there was supposed to be a king in Assyria. He wasn't supposed to be in Nineveh. So this reference to a king in Assyria seems to be an evidence of a person who would normally just have a lower level of authority, regional authority, a governor, a premier type of a character, taking on a really unusual amount of power, which is bad for Assyria. All this means that these people may have been in an unusually receptive state when Jonah showed up that God had prepared the ground for him to come and give this message. But there, I think, is a much deeper uh, reason why these people repented. From, from a historical, from an external perspective, there are these factors. That's true. But most basically, these people believed because the message of God reached their hearts the Apostle Paul talks about how God's word is read in many places every Sabbath day. He's writing in his context. <clears throat> and he says, yet what happens is often there's a veil covering the hearts of the people. So that God's word comes to them and it doesn't get through. And in this case, that's not what happens. This word of God comes from Jonah and it really reaches them. And we see that clearly, I think, from this text because what they're doing is not just trying to go through the rituals to make this foreign god back off. This kind of ritual approach to satisfying God is one that you may yourself be familiar with. It's the kind of thing that happens when you know, you're watching the movie uh, and you know, it's this mob movie and all the mobsters are Catholic. You notice that? Catholic mobsters in movies. Seems like a strange combination. A life dedicated to crime and wickedness, but you're a Catholic. And doubtless these are not good Catholics. But the way around it for some of these people, and I've known people like this, and maybe you have too, is that there are rituals that you can go through that take care of that problem for you, right? Like you show up and you say, okay, uh, I did do some bad things. I did, you know, it's true. I may be 
uh, a member of the empire of Assyria and I've committed terrible violence against everyone. And then the priest says, it's okay, just do these things and then your sins will be forgiven. Just say, everyone in Nineveh, please say a hundred Hail Marys and we'll all be okay. That's not what happens. All that could happen with, with the sackcloth and the fasting and, and the ashes. All that could just be empty ritual, right? Like you can do all those things and say, now look, God, I've worked super hard to show how sorry I am, so please leave me alone, and then we'll, we'll do all this again in a couple years, right? You'll get mad again, I'll be sorry again, it'll be fine. That's not what's happening here, because as you can see in verse 8, the king says, let everyone turn from his evil ways. So this is going beyond ritual. Let everyone turn from the violence that is in his hands. And it says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, what thing that they did, all the sackcloth and the ashes? No, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. What's happening here is a genuine repentance. Jonah's preaching has confronted them with God's hatred of their evil. Jonah's preaching has confronted them with the fact that this powerful foreign God, whoever he is, he hates their violence and he is going to punish them for it and they are repenting. That word repent has many different aspects, but one aspect is a turning away. A, a, a redirection. And so a couple days ago, here we are, we're going in this direction of violence. And we're going in this direction of trying to leverage whatever we can, whatever power I have to cheat you, to put you down, to strike back against you. I'm going to look out for number one. And then through the city spreads this message that God hates that. And in fact, a lot of us have kind of been worried about that lately. And this message in God's grace sinks through to their hearts. We said, we've got to stop doing this. We have to stop acting this way. What kind of repentance is this? And that's an important question for us because we're, we're naturally wondering about the relationship between God and these people. We've been watching this whole time the relationship between God and Jonah as one of his chosen people and his spokesperson. And that relationship is going really badly. And then on the other side, we've seen these sailors, these pagan sailors that God put into contact with Jonah. They hear this warning. They see a a demonstration of God's power. And they not only are respectful, but they actually make vows. They offer sacrifices to Yahweh in Israel. It says they offer these things to God using his covenant name. And as we saw at that time, it seems like the sailors, the indication is that the sailors like Rahab or like Naaman are actually converted. So what about these folks? Well, the text here doesn't give us strong reasons to believe that this is a, a, a full conversion, that this is a true conversion. 
When we read about the sailors, you can go back and read it in chapter 1. You see that the name of God is used, but it's not used here. Throughout this section, in verse 8, when the king, uh, in verse 8 and 9, when the king tells everyone to pray to God and turn to God, this is just the general word for God. God's covenant name is not used here. And even more uh, importantly, we don't see any comment on their relationship to the false Assyrian gods. They, uh, Nineveh was an important religious center. There were big important temples here. And we don't see them reflecting on their relationship with the gods. We don't see them turning away from their relationship with the false gods. We do see this happening in a couple places in the Old Testament with individuals. This happens with Ruth. This happens with Naaman. You remember he talks about how He's going to serve the one true God even though he has to be around these other temples. Doesn't happen here. And so for that reason, I think that this is an account of a moral revival. These people hear the word of God. They're very, very afraid. The message reaches them, but they're not turning completely toward God. Instead, the, script, the scripture says that they're turning away from their evil. They're turning away from their violence. They're turning away from their evil. They're reforming their morals. But this is not a conversion, a true spiritual conversion. And in fact, history is going to tell us, history does tell us, that this change in their attitude doesn't last very long. Uh, within a generation, Assyria has put itself back together to some degree militarily and resumed its violent and conquesting ways and resume them in Israel as it happens. But even though that's the case, I think we might, you know, we might see that and we might think, well, these people aren't really, you know, they haven't really turned toward God. They haven't really um, repented. You know, this doesn't really count, might be our feeling. And I want us just to notice how God treats this because I think despite the fact that this is not a full turning toward God. This is not a full conversion. We shouldn't treat this as something meaningless or as something hypocritical because God doesn't. It says in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them. This is what God intended to happen. God intended his warning to reach them and for them to change the way that they acted. And they did. And we're going to come back to that theme next time in a big way. But now I want us to take up the question of why God does what he does. And we've read this a couple times already. It says that God relents. Nineveh repented of their sin. They they were prepared for the message. They heard the message and they truly accepted it even though they didn't accept it in the fullest possible way. And that's why they did what they did. But God, when he sees what they do, he relents, is the word that the ESV uses here, of the disaster that he said he would bring. Why does God do that? Well, again, the text tells us in a very straightforward way he does that because he recognizes their repentance when he saw what they did then he relented jonah is really really angry about that we'll come back to that next time 
Jonah wanted blood. He wanted fire. He wanted suffering. He doesn't get any of that. But there are a lot of people who are quite far removed from Jonah's frame of mind who may feel uncomfortable with what God does here for different reasons. And that's what I want us to, to focus on a little bit right now. Because God says he's going to judge them, and then he doesn't judge them. And so there are people who might read that, and maybe this is you, maybe you read that and you feel uncomfortable. You think, well, how can God overlook their sins? Right? He says he's going to do it, and then he doesn't do it. I think the scriptures give us at least three answers to this question. The truth is this is a very big question. But here we can take at least, at least three, note of three things. The first thing is that God is not overlooking their sin. This is really important for us to recognize. The first answer to this question, how can God turn away and, and overlook their sin, is that that's not an accurate characterization of what God is doing. God is not overlooking their sin. There is no language in this, in this text that we've read. We do not see any language about forgiveness. We do not see any language about pardon for the evil that they've done. That would require something very different from what occurred here. And that's another reason to not regard this as a true conversion. What we read here is about God delaying the judgment that he promised he would bring. All those things that the Assyrians did, all the evil that's come up before God, all that, that was all done right up until yesterday. All the crimes and all the violence, that was happening until, you know, 8 o'clock this morning. Everybody's repented now. And so God says, okay, I'm going to, I'm not going to bring the destruction that I said I would. But that leaves all that stuff unaddressed. What God is doing is delaying the judgment that's coming on them for their past sins. And he is rescuing them from heaping more judgment onto themselves. What God does in his justice is always perfectly fair and just. And so if someone murders five people, but doesn't murder the other two he was planning to, God notices that. He takes that into consideration. This is not as bad as someone who murders all seven. And so God is rescuing these people from adding judgment to their judgment. He is not overlooking or dismissing their sins. This is the first answer. And this is the case in many, many of these questions. But there's a second answer. The second answer is that the purpose of all such messages from God is to warn human beings. The purpose of all these messages is to warn people so that we don't move toward judgment. And I want us to look at a passage that really spells this out in a little bit more length. Turn to the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 18, Jeremiah 18, occurs in a context where God is dealing with his own people back in their own land, and they similarly are being called 
to turn from their evil way. And unlike the Ninevites, they're not doing that. And so God wants to clarify something for his prophet Jeremiah. And he says here, just read with me, Jeremiah 18, the first 10 verses. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house. And this is, this is just a guy who makes clay pots. That's what the potter is, right? The clay guy. I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, and by the way, I want you to notice, he does not say, if I declare concerning Israel. He says, if I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom. This is God's prerogative for everybody, everywhere. He says, if I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up, or if I will uproot it, pull it out by the roots, and I will break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. What's happening here? God is explaining that his purpose in sending these messages is to change people's behavior. God is not offering these comments as kind of like a prophetic foresight. This is going to happen no matter what. This is a little bit like you may have had this experience if you have children in your home, right? You open the door to the kid's room. This has never happened to, to me because my kids are perfect. But some people's kids, this might happen. You open the door to your room and you see the child just about to do the thing that you said that they should definitely not do. They're reaching out to do it. And you say to the child, you're going to get in trouble. And the child acts like, what? I was not doing the thing. I was putting the thing away so that I wouldn't do it. And when you say you're going to get in trouble, the purpose of that is not to say, now, you know, you know the kid doesn't say, okay, I'm going to get in trouble. And then, then you leave and they're like, wait, dad, come back, punish me. You said you were going to. But everyone understands the purpose of these words is to warn. It is to steer people away from the thing that is harmful. And, and look, look at the text that we've just read in, in Jonah 3. Why does God say to them, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed? If God wanted to destroy Nineveh for their sin, if that was his only purpose, he could have just nuked them and Jonah could have sat back in Samaria and had like a cool drink and been none the wiser. Right? God has this power. God has this right. Why did he get Jonah out of bed in the first place? Because it is his purpose to warn. And so his statement is designed 
to turn them around. <clears throat> the third answer that I want to give to the first one is that God is not overlooking their sin. Second, the purpose of these statements, all such statements in Scripture, are to change people's behavior. But the third one um, is that these objections, when someone says, look, God said he was going to do this, but then he, he didn't do that, and isn't that him, you know, just changing his mind, but it says that God doesn't change his mind. These kind of objections, they confuse two different things that God talks about. God talks to us about two different things. Sometimes God talks to us about himself, his character, and his eternal purposes. And these things truly do not change and cannot ever change. God is love, and he will always be that. God is light, and he will always be that. God is the way he is now, and always has been, and always will be. And from that flow certain purposes that cannot ever be altered. And we often read about them, and we often talk about them when we're reading the Bible or we're in church. We often use words like the words covenant to talk about these things. God will never act in conflict with his divinely good character and his promises to bring all of us and all of his creation into harmony with his character will be fulfilled. But sometimes he talks to us about ourselves. And when he does that, sometimes he urges and commands us to stop rejecting him or else we are going to be punished. And when we hear that, we're seeing two perspectives on one truth. The one truth is that we are going to be brought into harmony with the character of God. And there are two ways that that can happen. First, we can either be reconciled to God and we can live and experience joyful harmony in his love. Or number two, we can reject God and we can experience awful harmony as we endure the judgment of God. Both of these things are accomplishing one great purpose, which is to bring everything into line with God's character. And when we say, yeah, this is the way I want to be. I want to be like God. I want to turn away from all my self-destructive activities. I want to turn away from trying to be in charge because this is what violence is. Violence says, I call the shots. I make the decisions. You're in my way. I don't like that. Bam, now you're not in my way. Violence is self-promotion. And so if we turn away from that, we say, no, I, I repent of that. I want you, God, to call the shots. I'm going to follow you. God brings us into harmony with himself by reconciling us to him. And for people who continue to refuse that, who continue to say, no, it's got to be me. I've got to call these shots. I, I am not going to listen to that because that would mean giving up too much. Because that would mean backing off of the things that I want more than anything else. God will bring you into harmony with himself. The harmony of judgment. Because for the person who rejects God, God shows his justice against that person. These are two sides of one coin. God has not changed. 
God's promises have not been altered. This passage that comes to us in the middle of this really remarkable little book about God's patience and mercy really challenges us, I think, to think correctly about the message of God's anger. When, when we talk about God's anger, we almost always use the word wrath. People always talk about the wrath of God. And I try not to do that because we never use the word wrath, ever, except in church. And that makes it a word that, that loses some of its punch and significance. It's not a special word in the Bible. God's anger doesn't have its own special word that has its own special meaning. It's just a word for anger. But when God speaks to us, when we hear these messages of God's anger, how do we feel about them? I think that, that's a complicated question. God sends this warning to the people of Nineveh because he cares about them. And even though these people don't fully turn to him and they are not fully reconciled, God is pleased when they reject violence, when, when they turn toward doing right, being like God in their society, loving their neighbors. God's pleased when that happens. God is speaking in these messages about his anger at the same time, both of his delight and justice and his demand for repentance. And there are a lot of people out there who are really interested in justice and an end to violence. And they're like, yeah, this is the way we should live. But they, and sometimes this is us. Sometimes we don't want to think about or talk about God's anger. Like, eh, that's very uncomfortable. Like justice, end of violence, yes, that is great. God's anger, mm, I'm not sure. And some people will go way beyond. I don't want to hear about God being angry. That's not cool. Why is God doing violence to me? Because they've missed that God is the, the one who rules over all. Sometimes, on the other hand, there are people like the Israelites who are tempted to listen to these messages about God's anger on unbelievers and on the people who are far from him and say to themselves, yeah, that's great. Preach it. That definitely doesn't apply to me. That's exactly where the Israelites were. That's exactly where Jonah is. We're going to see that in a really big way next time. But if you've been paying attention, it's been in every single chapter. Jonah's out here like, smite the unbelievers. And he's just completely insulting God with everything he does. Totally missing it. This message, this message that comes to us really uh, is a challenging one. And it points the need, it points the finger to what is really needed. It points in the direction of the need for something greater than Jonah. Jonah cannot solve this problem. That phrase, greater than Jonah, might be one that you recognize because it's something that Jesus said. Jesus was preaching to people. He was telling them the message of God. And Jesus was, of course, one who carried a message. And the, his message is summarized in many places in the gospel as this, repent, repent. Because God's kingdom is close. Jesus is very comfortable talking about God's anger. And yet at the same time, Jesus is the person more than anyone else who is characterized by perfect love for his neighbors. Jesus is the kind of person who can look at someone who has made a complete 
wreck of their lives and they've done it to themselves. And Jesus can speak kindly and gently and warmly to this person and, and draw them out into the love of God. Jesus is the only one who brings together God's mercy and God's justice. Jesus is the only one who unites God's purity with a full love for lost people. And it is only in Jesus Christ that we can hear this message of God's anger and find life. I think the reason that so many people are, are frustrated, I shouldn't say that, I think the reason that some people are frustrated and turned off by the message of God's anger is that they hear it, but they never hear that God's anger has been transformed into life for them through Jesus Christ. I think that's the reason that some of us are uncomfortable. Some of God's people who come to church and read the Bible every week, we don't want to hear about God's anger because we feel like God is angry with us because we have stopped paying attention to the miraculous salvation that comes to us in Jesus Christ. And we started to line everything up like Jonah. Right? I, I haven't murdered anybody. I was angry with that one guy. I'm not sure what I'm going to do now. God's probably angry. There's probably storms coming. God calls us to recognize the truth. His anger will correct everything that is not reconciled to him. But it never comes without that warm offer of reconciliation. God wants us to come to him through Jesus Christ, turn away from what is destructive in ourselves and find life and peace the only way we can. Let's pray.